All right, so thank you for listening. You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, where we take our live show from USF Bulls Radio, and we publish it here for you to listen at your enjoyment. Um, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Anthro Alert here on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa. 16:20 a.m. on campus and streaming worldwide 24/7 at tunein.com and on the TuneIn app. Uh, so this is Anthro Alert. This is the show about anthropology and why it matters. Each week, we like to discuss here on the show how anthropology is relevant, and over time, we'll feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology here at University of South Florida. Uh, we discuss their research, and so we have them weigh in on everyday topics or current events. We try to be topical if we can. Uh, sometimes we're not. That's okay. But sometimes we are, and that's, like, great. So we believe this show is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists to better connect with the USF community and raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective. That's, all, that's what we're all about here in anthropology. We're just trying to, like, infiltrate anthropology. No, wait, wait. We're trying to infiltrate non-anthropology with anthropology so that yeah. everybody out there listening that's, like, trying to figure out what anthropology is you have at least some better idea. Yeah, and hopefully we apply that in interesting ways. That's what that's what we're trying to do. Yes. So, <laughs> so thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. My name is Rene Herrera, and I am Spencer Bachover. And we're graduate students here at the University of South Florida, um, in, in applied anthropology. Yes, as it so happens to be. <laughs> that is correct. We're uh, also we are here with our guest Alex. Uh, he is a, a new Ph.D. student in the department. Uh, this is his uh, second semester here, so welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, thank you for volunteering your time to come hear us ramble about things. So we appreciate that. Yeah, and before, right before we get started with the show, just want to remind everybody, you can join the conversation. You know, feel free to give us a call, 813-974-9285. We'll try and, we'll try and answer your call live on the air if possible. Um, if not, you can send us a text message, 802-552-4487. And, of course, you know, hit us up on Twitter at AnthroAlert. Um, I mean, we're on Facebook, too, but we're not checking it right now at, like, at this hour. So. Yeah. So, so Twitter's probably the best. Or text message, you know, yep. if you have a phone. So we started that two shows ago, and I think we've had a total of four people send in questions. So, yeah. yeah. And they were very interesting questions. They were. Last week, we had some very insightful questions, so. If you want to throw those our way, if you have some questions that are you're just burning to get answers to, send them in. Awesome. All right, so let's uh, let's start the show today. Let's do it. All right, Alex. So you're like I said, you're new to the department. So can you just you know interest, introduce yourself a little bit, give a little bit about your your background and kind of what led you to to USF? Um, sure, I have. Uh I don't, I, don't know, I don't know if I'd say a non-traditional background because I think a lot of anthropologists come from a lot of different places. Yeah. And you have to end up in places that are outside of anthropology, too, generally. Yeah. Um, but uh, my undergraduate, a long time ago, was um, in psychology. I actually worked in a psychiatric hospital for a couple of years. Um, and then I uh, ended up getting randomly a gig in South Korea teaching English. I did it for a year. That was a lot of fun. And that somehow rolled into a gig of me doing managing a sea turtle research project for about a year in Grenada. And this is where I started getting really, really interested in anthropology because um, the guy that ran the project was very much interested. He's, he's from England, and he was very much interested in getting the community to 
take over the project and run it themselves, which they do now. Um, and so they would have it was funded through volunteers. So they about uh, over a course of a season, which is about nine months, they would have forty five volunteers come in six at a time every three weeks. And so I, I just lived on site, and you go out and do CTO research, and then I taught once a week at a school for kids, um, which a school for kids, of course. Um, but uh, which was a nightmare, by the way. You just show up. I, I didn't realize how this would work, but I just show up and like, who would like to take a class on sea turtles and marine systems? I'd love to teach some kids. Like fifty kids signed up. <laughs> so my first day I showed up, it was just me and fifty kids. It was it was horrible. Um, it got better as time went on. But so I basically yeah. just spent nine months sleeping on the beach every night to do sea turtle research and then um, kind of training these interns and stuff like that. And so I got really interested in the way um, these interns would interact with locals and how locals. It, 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 he'd use an economic perspective to get. Um, local fishermen to stop hunting turtle and start he paid them to do research and he'd try to supplement the wages that way and see if kind of a conservation ethic grew out of that um and so there's and and then all these interns came in from the project and they would spend money throughout the town and so the town really loved us and so it was just kind of an interesting dynamic to see how that evolved and that got really interesting to me and this was very rural it's um in grenada and uh saint patrick's um kind of uh, facing um the uh, Atlantic Ocean, so there's nobody out there. It's really, really rural. Um, and I went from that to Barbados, and I lived in a hotel, and this is a very built-up place doing Hawksville Sea Turtle Research, and they had a completely different set of strategies for their con- for conservation. It was not mm-hmm. – community people would volunteer occasionally to kind of go out and do it, but it was pretty much run through the school, and it was um, – you coordinated with uh, legal and businesses a lot more often. So it was, you were much more piped into police to stop poaching or um, to help you if there was like a ton of turtles came up one spot, you'd go run over there. Um, and so I, they had these totally two different, wildly different strategies for managing the same resource based on a cultural context, the, the, these programs did. And that got me really interested. And so I ended up um, getting my master's in marine biology in St. Thomas in the Caribbean. So I stayed there for about four years. Um, looking at the different ways the culture engage, different pockets of the culture engaged with um, resources, what ended up kind of ended up being my dissertation. So, how does a Rastafarian farmer look at things versus someone working in the tourism uh, and hospitality versus um, a transplant who's there working for an NGO on conservation? And, and are there differences in the way they look at these resources and articulate these resources and that kind of thing? So, I got. That kind of it was a marine science degree, and my coursework was all marine science, um, and so I was just really trying to catch up on s- social science concepts and anthropological concepts. Um, and and I when I finished, I just didn't feel like I knew near enough. Um, and so I'd actually met Christian Wells. He saw me give a di- uh, one. I gave multiple defenses in my dissertation. My professor just kind of had me take it on the road. Um, so I uh, he saw one of them, and so he uh, kind of invited me to join this program and so I did that, that sounds stressful like multiple dissertations not really because it got easier there's the first one um, which was stressful uh, but then after that it doesn't matter anymore like I, I, at this point I'd been given like he's like fine giving you the, the green light and so you're just up there battling for your own sake and so nobody cares about it and then you know it so well you know once you live in it um, I'd been part of a, an international project that was based in Japan so I'd had already to come I, to come up to Sarasota and go out to Japan and, and they kind of floated me around um, to compare what, what I was doing with what some other uh, groups were doing from like Korea and Germany and stuff like that. And so I got, I guess, accustomed to just taking my show on the road. Um, it would have been more stressful if I had to do a different version of it. Right. So uh, were you just doing end. this at like conferences around several places? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
um, conferences, but then some of them were a little more. They'd have we'd have like working groups. So I, sometimes I would focus on one aspect. Like I did a lot of uh, text mining and analysis, and I create network structures with text, and it's kind of a novel way of analyzing that. I'm doing content analysis or natural language uh, processing, and so uh, we would have working groups where like eight Japanese people interested in that would students would come to St. Thomas, and then we'd hold like a, a week long conference, and so I would give portions of my defense during that. So stuff like that, right. kind of. He liked. He wanted to milk every. Can you talk a little bit about that, the uh, text mining and things like that? Can you explain like what that is? Sure. So, um, uh, it's and it's actually really great f- for anthropology, and it's something I'm trying to develop, and I've done it a little bit on the project. We'll talk about later. Um, but interview is besides participant observation, interviews are kind of like the anthropological go-to. Mm. Um, and, and a lot of it's just natural flowing text. If you can just get people kind of tech, you're not, if it's not a really structured interview, it's very unstructured, you get a lot of text and it can be very difficult to code. So there's classically been lots of ways to do that uh, qualitatively to just kind of go through and, you know, you're doing a highlight method or you're doing grounded theory, whatever. Right. Um, but there are some mathematical properties that text follows that makes the reduction of it really easy. So even like if I sat down and I did an interview, like we, we even when we transcribed this conversation they are going to have today, and then you wanted to text mine, which is to strip all the words that aren't like is or the out of out of the um, text, you'd find that even though we talked about we might have said three thousand or even twenty thousand different unique words that we said a small cluster of probably three to four hundred words infinitely more times. And it was a following what's called a, a power law distribution, where about 20% of what you say counts for about 80% of the frequency of the words you say. Right. Um, so once you have that, you can reduce it down, and then um, you start to look at how words co-occur together. And it's kind of like a social network analysis or um, IT network analysis. It's the same concept, but you start to look – using those co-occurrences, you can start to look at how words are connected. Okay. So that was interesting. So an example is when I would look at – say I did um, these – loosely structured interviews with Ross Farm Farmers in St. Thomas. Um, and we were talking about sustainability and the island and the future and, and what they thought the future was going to hold and, and then how they thought the island operated, what was really important to the future and what wasn't. And they would talk about the environment differently. They were farmers, and they were very secluded. They had been in the early 80s basically paid. They'd all been given a salary by the government to leave one end of the island to, to another end, an undeveloped end of the island to sort of set up camp there as a farming co-op. And there's only about 35 of them left. And so um, when they talked about the uh, environment, it was always connected to sustainability, a way of life, to different um, terrestrial products. They would talk about trees. And so when I when – I, and, and that was tended to be a trend when I talked to um, – any uh, locals, born and raised locals in St. Thomas, then when they talk about the environment, they would refer that, – that, that concept would be more connected with different types of trees and vegetation and stuff like that. But then when you talk to transplants, they all talk about sedimentation and water and coral and fish. And so there was a difference. And then when you talk to management agencies, they only – when you looked at the little connections in a network graph, the environment was always associated with things like uh, economics and impacts. And, and they'd been sort of conditioned and cultured to think of it from a managerial sense right. versus these other places didn't. So you wonder how the discourse, when they want to, when you're talking about management agencies looking at it only one way right. versus a community looking at it a different way, where there's some frictions there or some certainly some missed opportunities, right. I guess. So that that, that kind of, right. um, it's one way of looking at text mining. Okay. It's a useful way of understanding how people make associations about the world. 
So in, um, you know, talking to these different groups in your, um, for your master's work, did you kind of find what these differences were? Like why, you know, what influenced, um, you know, the ways that they were working with the land or what they thought about the land or no, so know, again, conservation I, and stuff? I uh, had no anthropological training, just an interest. And okay. so a lot of this, like, um, how to facilitate focus groups, what kind of focus groups to do, all that kind of stuff, um, was a lot on my own time. Oh, okay. I didn't have any courses related to that. And so just getting them down. And then same thing for this text analysis. I had zero courses on that. That was something I just had to slowly, like, my, my uh, advisor was into it. And so he would just kind of... He luck. He was very nice, and he would pay if I needed software or I needed products or I needed whatever. But um, it was just kind of like left to my own devices. And so, like mm-hmm. at one point, I remember when I f- was first trying to build these algorithms, I spent three months like conditioning the text and building the algorithm, and then it was just wrong. There's ways of doing uh, um, validating your models, and this right. mind just all tanked. Um, That's and frustrating. So then I just had to restart. <laughs> Um, which crushed me. But then, you know, if it took you three months to do it the first time, it takes you, you know, a month to do it the second time. So um, I got over it and it was, it was fine. But uh, so, no, I, I was mostly just just get engaging them in the interviews was kind of my primary unit of analysis. This idea of participant observation, just hanging out and including that, so foreign to me. And kind of counterintuitive because I was in a program that still saw even what I was doing as too mushy-gushy. Because okay. you needed numbers, and it's like, well, where's your ANOVA, and where's your, like, you know, you need, like, um, everything needs to be quantified, So, which is partly what instigated me quantifying language so heavily. I would have never have thought of doing a traditional qualitative text analysis. I had to do uh, um, content analysis. I had to do this in a, in a way that I could quantify and demonstrate that not only are these associations um, – exist between the groups but i can enumerate them and show you the numbers and then i can right. you know compare them that way and so that was like a big driver for me and anova that's um it's a, like a something we just heard um anova is analysis of variance it's a statistical thing oh yeah sorry um, i don't need to just drop uh, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, with, anyway, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have to just be that, but it just right. they had you know there's a suite of statistical tests and it's based on getting being able to get certain types of data that you can get in ecological environments um, that you can't necessarily get from an interview and right. so um, or even a survey. And so what I was I was definitely seen as like the soft, the hippy-dippy one that was out there like talking to people and whatever that means. And so I probably had a little bit of insecurity about that. And so the idea of doing things, like I said, like participant observation or trying to put it in context of their way of life and the, and the things they were doing – I couldn't. I I hadn't. I wasn't comfortable yet doing that. I'd, everything was at the textual level, what they'd said, and seeing if I could quantify that enough to convince mm. a coral ecologist that it was meaningful. <laughs> and, and just to backtrack a little bit, um, the f- the first time you ever saw a sea turtle, were you surprised at how large they are? Well, so I got, I got to tell you, the first time I saw a sea turtle, it wasn't just a sea turtle. It was a leatherback sea turtle, which uh, you know probably six feet long and 2,000 pounds. A lot of people run into green sea turtles, and, like, they're that big. They're not that big. If you went to Hawaiian saw turtle, it, it was not that big. They can get up to, like, 800 pounds or something, but some of those leatherbacks will be 2,000 pounds. The largest one I ever found was 2,000 pounds. It's like the size of a small Volkswagen beetle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you see it hoofing up the beach, so it was actually a, it, was, it was beautiful. So I never had no interest in um, previous interest in sea turtles. I was just teaching in Korea. A job popped up. Because this guy had wanted to start an education program, but he didn't have the tools to do it, he mistakenly thought that since I had been in Korea teaching, that I would be able to do this well. It was probably not a great pick on his his part. 
Um, but he gave me that gig, and I um, and he basically came down to it was a, it was a, a really great moment for anyone's thinking about being an anthropologist. Actually, when I was hired, we had this long discussion. The guy that hired me was actually also a uh, just had a bachelor's in psych. He was, like I said, he was from England, and because the project did include a lot of field work, it was usually seven at night till seven in the morning. Wow. Um, because turtles come up when they come up, and they only come up at night. So, And right. then a certain part of the season, you get to go out and catch them in water, which is my favorite thing in the world to ever do. So you just free dive, throw some fins on, snorkel, jump down 40 feet, haul it back up, throw it on a boat, and um, get your data that way. Wow. But um, majority of it is at night, and so you have these interns coming in, and a lot of them are volunteer vacationers. Some are like a kid from Senegal who's thinking about going to medical school, and so he wants this on his resume or whatever. But a lot of it's like 50-year-old Patty, and she just wanted a nice vacation, but she's also in this environment. And so he uh, found that hiring um, strictly scientific people, biologists, was is actually a detriment to his program because they weren't very good at handling the people mm. that came to do And this was actually true. There was, there was um, basically four managers that came through that season. Uh, it was me, a guy with a political science degree. Another guy who um, did kind of uh, environmental outreach and education, and then we hired one hardcore uh, sea turtle biologist from Hawaii who would, like mm-hmm. used to go out for like weeks at end. They, they'd drop, they'd like helicopter him and drop him supplies, and he would do research out there. Wow! And he got voted off the island because he just we, he was so uh, he wasn't accustomed to living with people in a revolving door of people mm-hmm. and the kind of the skills that that took, right. and to relate the information to people. And and it, again, it was like. Um, Everyone came from different countries. Like one week it was German, one week it was people from France that don't speak any English, and you got to figure out how they're going to coexist. You're all living in a house, sharing rooms together with someone from Denmark and someone from Spain, and so you know. And so there's language problems, and the expectations are different for young people who just want to go out and do research versus an older person who might just want to hang out and have a nice experience. So you're negotiating a lot of different levels, and this guy couldn't do it. So halfway through the season, we asked him to leave because it became he became very difficult. To, to live with and his expectations of what research should be was so rigid mm. um, and so this guy preferred to hire people with some social science background because he felt that they would be better at handling the project itself and the, and the actual sea turtle science and research and data organization and that kind of stuff um, can be taught fairly quickly you're looking right. at sprout spreadsheets and filling out sh- things and you're, you're really just explaining basic sea turtle knowledge to people and then mm. you can get as much you want so that was actually a really great experience. But anyway, it's the first time I got there. I went out there in February, and it was just me and this guy that ran it. I named Carl Lloyd. He's lovely. Um, and he, you drive about an hour and a half, two hours from the airport to the to the most remote um, Atlantic-facing tip of, of Grenada. And there's nothing out there. The beach is – there's nothing there. You go, you go down a dirt road for a while. Behind you is a brackish lake and a lagoon. You know, you're really kind of – you're pretty remote. Mm. Um, no uh, light pollution. You're just sitting out there in the stars and waiting, and it's really, really dark. Um, and this they, they hoof up when leatherbacks come up. They – I don't know how to show this on a radio. They basically swing their arms in front of you. I don't know how you guys would describe this, but they swing their arms in front of them and then have to push themselves up so they don't huh. – strut up the beach uh green sea turtles will strut up the beach and they have a very distinct pattern right. sorry hawks will um will but um leatherbacks because they're so heavy basically just have to like plop their fins in front of them and then hoof themselves up the beach huh. and it makes uh, a very distinct pattern but watching a 1200 pound animal do that is really um incredible the wow. first time you see it, they pop up, and they have these very dinosaur faces. They're not cute, cuddly uh, <laughs> turtles. The way you're, they're not like the uh, Mario Brothers turtles. You know, oh, yeah. Just these big monster faces. Di- they're just—they're the oldest ones. Um, they're just these dinosaur turtles that 
roll up. It was really, really, really cool. I'm sure that's an interesting experience seeing a 2,000-pound animal just lumber up. Dinosaur, yeah. yeah. In, the, in the dark on the beach yeah, and when you're, you're trying, all alone. You're trying your best not to interfere with it until it starts its nesting process. And so that was um, that was really cool. I'd never – and so then you're, you're after that, you know, I'm a sea turtle person for life. And so. so going back to, I guess, you know, essentially community engagement that you guys had, you know, with the volunteers and stuff. How did you go from, you know, teaching English in Korea to, to having to, um, you know, work with three or four different people that you hadn't previously met before and then having to navigate um, these individuals from, you know, different countries? You said there's language barriers. How did you guys sort of um, go about organizing that that situation? Uh, a lot of it was schedules. So um, everyone had set schedules for when they would go on the beach and when they weren't. And then they would do – everyone had to have dinner together every night. Breakfast, lunch, on your own. Um, you could come shop. We, went, we had a, a one-weekly shop where you could go out um, with us. We'd go over – like it was, uh, I don't know, a 10-minute drive to a town with a grocery store or something like that. Um, but everyone eating together was a big deal. And then we rotated who cooked, mm. um, which everyone had the chance to disappoint everyone else at least <laughs> once, which is good. Um, and so I think a lot of that, like just forcing everyone to room and then on beach, you always have partners cause you're, it's a, it's about a mile and a half beach. And so, and you're, you're doing it every 30 minutes, you're walking it and then you stop if there's a turtle. So you end up spending a lot of time together. And so you're just trying to pair people with people that they would have a nice experience with. Mm. Um, you do run into like weird situations of like a, a guy that's kind of a peeping Tom and just stuff like that, where you, you know, cause you're putting random people who have all paid for this experience and you can't screen them. And so right. you did have to kind of navigate those issues, sure. um, in a way that worked for the program and work for the people. Mm. Um, so there's lots of, um, we used to try and I actually have a, I have a very large tattoo on my ribs of the monopoly man holding a Grenadian flag. And, Part of the reason I got this is because um, my buddy, who's now still, still one of my best friends in life, um, that I'd never met till then, he actually ended up going to Barbados with me. We went to grad school in St. Thomas together. We both decided to move there together. And so, um, and he's hopefully now getting a job in Fort Lauderdale studying sea turtles. Um, he, uh, he and I loved Monopoly. And so we started doing this thing called Monopoly Mondays, where people came in on a Sunday night. And then we would – so the next night we go, hey, look, everyone's in. Let's do the first – Let's for everyone who doesn't have to go to the beach, let's stay and we'll do Monopoly Monday. We had a scoreboard so you could see what past people done it. Mm-hmm. And me and him got so intense, so intense because we played it so often together yeah. that we would uh, sometimes like not talk to each other for a couple of days after we did this. Monopoly so, like ruins friendships. It, it I've, did. I've had that experience. Yeah. And so you – and we kept putting <laughs> each other in there. It's like gladiators going to fight now. So like sometimes like tipping boards, like uh, we play on Monday. We don't talk to each other till Thursday. Like as much as we can have it. Like we would get really, really intense. So it turned into like Monopoly Monday became Monopoly every th- every third Monday because groups would come in. That first day, you know, the first day morning, everyone's up together. We go, hey, let's play Monopoly night. It's fun. Let's do it. Da, da, da. And then the next week, he goes, anyone want to play? And like, no, not with you two. We don't want to play anymore. So every when you looked at the scoreboard, the, the date would just go like basically every third week when we get a new batch of interns, they would they, they would, would play because they had no idea how horrible me and him were going to be to each other. That's hilarious. Um, All right, I think we're going to take a quick music break and then we'll come back and continue the conversation. Well, specifically here on the radio, here on WSF Bulls Radio, 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide 
live and on the scene 24-7 at TuneIn.com and on the TuneIn app. I have that app. It's my favorite live radio app. I do like TuneIn app a lot. I listen to it quite you can often. Do pod, you can do podcasts. I saw that. Yeah, they have a lot of different options now. It's pretty cool. You can listen to music from all over the world. Yes. I like to listen to music from Mexico. Oh, yeah? Is there like one specific station that you like? No, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, you can just pull them up. There's a lot of inf- interesting things. I like to just kind of surf tune in sometimes. Uh, this, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a great, uh, it's a good app. So this week, um, our guest, Alex, is talking to us a little bit about how he got into anthropology, you know, what that what that journey looked like for him, you know, talking, talking to us about how sea turtles are giant, lumbering creatures. Dinosaurs. That... You know, 230 million years old, yeah. Aren't as pretty as you think they are. <laughs> no, no, that's not true. I mean, they are. And uh, certainly green and sea turtles, some of the younger in terms of like their evolutionary, are very pretty. Hawksmills yeah. are lovely. Greens are very, very pretty. Uh, just leatherbacks specifically. If anyone wants to Google leatherback turtle face. They're just a little gnarly. They, they have like this little Charlie Brown mouths. Uh, squiggly. It's just, they're interesting. I mean, I think they're, they're my favorite turtles. I'm not trying to dig them. They just don't look the way you, you'd think. Interesting. All right. Um, so, and uh, next, um, we're going to follow up with some. Oh, actually, I had a, something about yeah. uh, Monopoly. Get them. <laughs> uh, I'm not a fan of the game. <laughs> I'll be honest. What a cliche! Yeah. It's just, I, I think anti- it takes. I think it takes too long. It does take a long time. And and I don't think you get anything out of it. Like it's not. It's not a fun experience to like Some lose. frustration. <laughs> unless you're the one who dominates. Yeah, unless you're and the one who dominates. And then you get a, a very, very great feeling out of it. But but there's like a specific formula to be able to win the game. <laughs> and, and when people follow that and it works for yeah. them, it just makes me mad. I just – I remember one specific experience when I was in the dorms as an undergrad. We had like six or seven people that played it. And very quickly the room, the room divided into like teams and there was collusion and like – Oh, for sure. We started. Yeah. There was definitely, like, lying and bribing yeah. all the time. Yeah. It got intense. And it became very <laughs> suspicious about who is the banker. That yeah. broke down. So it's yeah. like, who's allowed to be the banker if we're going to play each other? Who's our neutral party? Yeah. And we yeah. were in a small room, like, all day. <laughs> if, um, uh, yeah. Have either of you heard of the game Anti-Monopoly? No, I haven't. Do you just give away what you have? <laughs> That's what I was. Who can care the most? <laughs> so it's um, it's a little different. And if you've ever complained about Monopoly taking too long, <laughs> anti-Monopoly will take you will take even longer <laughs> because you, it's impossible to win the game. So basically, because you know, you're all sharing. The <laughs> well, point is that everyone's going to have everything. How do you know? Who no, wins? You, you, the the players are split amongst like, uh, and I'm not, I'm not going to get these terms right according to the the manual of the game. That's fine. Um, against the the capitalist free market and oh, I don't remember like the co-op the co-opers <laughs> <laughs> and so of course you know very quickly like and they play by different sets of rules yeah one trades patchouli and crystals and the other one <laughs> does just gold blocks right? yeah yeah and it's um, if you're not on the winning end of that scenario it things get very frustrating very quickly yeah I'm sure it does that is awesome but but it's impossible to win the game it just takes forever. Yeah, it takes longer than Risk. Risk does take long. I like Risk though. I I, I'm a fan of that game. Um, all right, so let's let's hop back into um, some of the earlier discussions we're having. Um, you know, I well off the air we're having 
uh, discussion where Alex had brought up in an interesting term about like the continuum of, of science as he um, as he phrased it. Alex, could you comment a little bit on what you meant by that? Yeah, sure. And part of this is because uh, Christy, my research partner, is going to um, come in for a little bit after this to talk about our research project. And one of the things I get interested in working with her is some of our um, – so it can be very complicated sometimes, interdisciplinary collaboration because of expectations of science. Um, and it's become more and more clear to me um, in that there's a, um, I think, continue, uh, continuum of sort of sense of certainty. Say you were, I, I felt this even as a marine, as a marine biologist. Uh, when I would do social things, that would seem as like squishy. But even as a marine biologist, uh, uh, an oceanographer – or a physicist would see you as even you're even squishy relative to them. Yeah. So it comes with kind of this hierarchy a little bit. I think that there's lots of physics that can get very complicated very quickly, but generally they're dealing with things that have very um, predictable behavior mm-hmm. um, in terms of cause and effect. You know, if you drop something, it falls. Gravity is a thing, right. um, and so they're dealing with variables to them that uh, are they are they aren't. It, it does do it or it doesn't do it. Um, and so everything theoretically can be mapped based mm-hmm. on these causal relationships. Even in, even in a highly complex environment, you can still say, well, we can measure this one way or another based because we know the behavior of these variables. And then once you um, move away from that into something like biology, so the chemistry is probably the next step, and then you go to biology, things just don't do what they're supposed to do. You'll re- right. be like, well, this is sea turtles, and sea turtles like eat uh, – hawksbill sea turtles eat sponges. Most of the time they do. Yeah. is the answer to that because it's going to eat whatever it wants sometimes. Um, and so nothing behaves or, or, you know, this is how many hours they sleep a day, maybe. with you know, And you can say, there's, okay, we'll do statistics and variation and we can estimate a population, but you're never really going to be able to predict anything outside of a, a fairly broad range about what uh, biological behavior is going to look like. Right. You know, and we see this as we age and you get you know, cancer, other things where it's, it's sort of um, behavior that's very difficult to predict because it doesn't act the way it's supposed to. Right. Um, is the way we've defined that it's supposed to, and so your certainty level decreases. You have to, you sort of have to uh, live with a certain um, amount of uncertainty, right? But in those situations, you can't. I can't go to a sea turtle and ask why it didn't do what it's supposed to. It's like you know, they generally return to beaches that approximate where they um, where they were hatched. That's kind of it's a cool sea turtle little factoid that if you yeah, if you're hatched in St. Croix and you spend all your time eating and you grow up in St. Lucia as a sea turtle once you're pregnant you're going to go do um nest you're going to go back to St. Croix hmm. and nest again uh, which is a bad already there's not a lot of hawksbills in St. Croix so I probably could have had a better example but um so they basically uh they have sort of nesting grounds and breeding grounds and so but they have these sort of predictable behaviors but they won't go a lot of times they'll go exactly to the beach that they came out of but sometimes you know they're a few miles off and sometimes they're an island off so it's just there's all these variables that get in their way but I can't ask them why it's not like it's not like I can go well x percentage of turtles get tired and that's why they don't do it or x percent think it's stupid and refuse <laughs> to follow their evolutionary uh lemmings of their of their peers yeah. um so you don't have that. And so, but when you get to human sciences, now you have these behaviors that are inconsistent. And then you have people's interpretation of those behaviors, which mm-hmm. then leads you to anthropology, which is the understanding that you, even observing those behaviors and interpretations, that you have your own interpretation of those. Oh, so it's very meta. Right. And so you, you kind of move out um, from an objective reality a little bit. Um, and so uh, sometimes I think that can be 
makes collaboration difficult. And I think it's interesting even that um, Christy, when she comes in, you'll see she's she's been an environmental engineer and she's uh, finishing up her PhD now. Um, but she's worked a lot with anthropologists and she's actually very um, good at understanding some of those complexities and nuances of um, those situations. But uh, so she's considered, I, she, she often articulates, I don't want to speak for her, but that um, she's sometimes seen as the one that's like a little soft for an engineer. And then I come from... Uh, I think for the biological background, sometimes I feel more comfortable with things having a little more certainty than some anthropologists. So you'd think mm-hmm. we'd be kind of in the middle a little bit. And we right. still, even at that point, probably have difficulty about how to reduce reality um, and share it, I think, is what it comes down to. Yeah. Um, what? Uh, how much do I simplify a complex situation so that you can receive it? Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is a challenge for all anthropologists. So how do you go about navigating the continuum when you're in situations of collaboration, personally, I guess? Uh, It's just been sort of a slow march for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it definitely slowed things down. I think I had an idea of what I wanted to do, and she had an idea of what she wanted to do. And we'll ask about when she comes in, but um, I don't think either of us are doing that now. Um, And so you try to – and sometimes it's hard just to make variables – play together if you're looking at a way, like a wastewater system which is what we're talking about there's there are some uh predictable outcomes of those systems and so those variables right. look very different than management structures and historical use and stuff like that things right. that are so sometimes it's just very hard to even just combine them into one product yeah yeah because um, i mean you have things like wastewater systems where there are i guess certain systems where you know they either do or they don't they mm-hmm. they work or they don't work but then you have the community surrounding those systems that interact with those systems and then you i guess that's when interpretations come into play and different variables of like well somebody broke the system or you know whatever or nobody's using it or, right you know stuff like that so. and so when you are when you want to analyze it how do you incorporate all those variables together in a right. way that reads together we were in this where we we're thinking about scoring models where you try to enumerate certain perspectives i mean it just and there's ways you can do it um but i always probably um, you get suspicious once you start putting numbers on people's interpretations because you realize like that's it's fairly arbitrary. And so right. um, we're getting there. I think I really like our product. And when we talk about it, I'll be excited to talk about it when she gets here. But um, but yeah, it's been like it's been a, a, it's just a lot of like listening. And then I think on the part of the anthropologist, you just need to learn where to compromise and which aspects are important. Is it more important to highlight? Well, as long as we're looking at the diversity of a power sharing or the diversity of use or I mean whatever you're you think in that context whatever anthropological perspective is most important to highlight because you probably will have to compromise on right. some of the other ones about how complicated and complex things can be so coming from your marine biology and you know environmental perspective you know where do you fall on sort of the, the qualitative versus quantitative debate in anthropology do you you know do you just kind of Use whichever one fits the situation. Um, you know, you said you kind of like when things are um, do have numbers to them. You know, how do you how do you kind of navigate that? Do you just I think it's what's interesting is because this is an applied program, so this right. might not speak for all anth- anthropologists. But um, I think once you start, I, I've kind of been converted a little bit. I think when you're looking at some meta analysis and you're doing cross sites or um, you're trying to make some inference that might stretch beyond a particular locality. I think being able to be statistical um, is very helpful Mm -hmm. Um, and being able to quantify that so that you can compare like to like. um, 
because otherwise you're just writing tomes about the differences between the minor differences between places. Right. But I think once you're in a specific locality and you're trying to apply apply a difference, I'm actually like I'm becoming less and less sold on the need to quantify things because ultimately, um, unless it's absolutely necessary for it from a decision making standpoint, again, it's going to depend on where you are in the chain of whatever you're trying to apply, whether it's right. an intervention or. Um, but, um, for instance, for our project, we have all these interviews and I did a, a fair amount of text analysis, but uh, reading it and talking to people, you just, you're really just talking about the processes for how people do things, how they like to do things. And I think that qualitative understanding is so much quicker. Actually, yeah. this is the one time I think qualitative research is just quicker than quantitative in terms of improving a situation. Right. Because you don't have to, because if you're quantifying, you have to design how to go, you're going to quantify these behaviors and thoughts. And then you're going to have to analyze it, and then you're going to have to put it into a model to see versus when she, I think you can talk to people and make some pretty quick and dirty s- solutions that will fix for the short term. And in a lot of applied situations, whatever solution you're going to come up with, even if it's perfect at the time, will probably be wrong five years later. And so this yeah. idea of building these like – there's there's kind of two battles, and, and I, I study a lot more development than anything else, but I, I suspect this applies to other things. There's always this battle about uh, modeling a sustainable system for the long term. Um, or just what I would argue, which is just adapting, being better at adapting to change. If, if we, rather than try to figure out this kind of ideal model that we can slowly, not to say that doesn't have a lot of value, and it does, that we can slowly move life in a more sustainable direction, or you just coach people and and instill a sense of flexibility as a cultural value to say, oh, hey, look, this is what we're doing now, but we might have to change it um, based on our, you know, our own survival or the, or the betterment of our environment or our peers or whatever. And so this ability to be flexible and adapt to situations I think is, is maybe more important, and I yeah. think that's a very qualitative property. Right. Certainly, I guess, you know, numbers, depending on what groups you're dealing with or working with, numbers can be – a lot of people like numbers or to, to convey sort of uh, – you know, established progress or, or what have you. Yeah, and it's tough. It, it sets up scale. Is yeah. it 10 people or 100 people? And so there's all kinds of value. I'm not trying to completely dismiss it by any right, means. Right, and right, I yeah. think even to identify a problem, you generally have to have – you're generally enumerating it to say what is a problem, how many people is this impacting, right. you know, is it enough to matter, right. and how much does impact and what's the likelihood that this is the cause. So I think a lot of a problem identification um, can be – quantification helps you do that but I think a lot of change processes just come through effort and understanding what we're doing and I think it's a more qualitative process maybe I'm wrong I'm new to this so I don't know what I'm talking about well you know like numbers are like a, a cool thing um, I mean there's like all television shows in whose whole purpose is to like introduce children to numbers so, absolutely I'm not yes, right <laughs> so like Spencer was saying well, you know you have to find the right audience well the right audience is everybody yeah, yeah, and true. again, I'm not discounting. You're just asking how you negotiate. Right, and I think right, it's right, just yeah. to say it's depending on the situation. If you're trying to get a community to change its behavior, a lot of that's right. going to be qualitative understanding of what they're doing, what they're doing, and, and learning how to engage in a discourse that's useful to them. Right. Um, especially if, like, because um, you're looking at ad- in in some senses, that's like an advocacy mm-hmm. issue, an advocacy project, product or project. Yeah, and so a lot of that narrative and qualitative and ethnographic story really comes through and some of those things like really strike a chord with uh whoever you're trying to reach right. more than maybe like the impact of a of a a quantity that yeah. mm-hmm. shows i mean like they're both equally valid it's just which 
it's going to help you carry your message across. But that's more, maybe more so along like a well, an you're, activist social justice, I think. Yeah, I mean, you're putting – essentially, you're putting a human face to the numbers, right? So you're you're striking some sort of empathy or, you know, what have you, depending on what you're trying to, to change or implement or, you know, yeah. whatever your goal is. Yeah. But the willingness to change and the yeah. willingness to – that's uh, very much to me a uh, – a, a cultural muscle. It's a value to say right. that, oh, this is important. So it's enough information. Because just we've shown this time and time again. You can give people plenty of numbers that indicate something that's detrimental to them, and they still don't change their behavior. Right. Yeah. So, so the, the problem is larger than the, num- the enumerating it. So like I said, enumeration might help you identify the problem and, 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 and quote-unquote prove it, but to yeah. get people to actually instill a new value or to in- interpret and engage those numbers is a qualitative process yeah yeah so uh my grades have numbers attached to them and uh that, <laughs> that hasn't necessarily changed my behavior much but yeah well <laughs> uh i think um well on that note i think we're going to go ahead now and and uh take our extended music break and uh we're gonna regroup the show a little bit and um uh the four o'clock hour alex and christy will be here talking to us about their collaborative project And so we'll dive a little deeper into that. So for the next 15 minutes or so, and just sit back and enjoy the smooth tunes. All right, here we go.